You know, I uh, I like I like what we're talking about because it talks about create the miracle. The first miracle happened for me uh, this Friday, and I was asked to go down and pick up our speaker tonight at the uh, Atlanta airport Friday afternoon. You know, middle of the afternoon. And uh, he has no cell phone. I have no way of contacting this man, so I don't know whether we're upside down or what. I've never seen him before, but I thought, God, please help me find this man. <laughs> and I drive up, and I spoke to him, and I said, this is where you need to be. And I pull up in the middle of the afternoon at Atlanta Airport, and it was just like a handoff. There's a man standing there. He jumps in the car, and I said, God, this got to be a good weekend. <laughs> this just doesn't happen at the Atlanta Airport Friday afternoon. Anyway, you know, chatting and running back up to Marietta here. You know, it was really a privilege. And I, I dropped uh, our guest off here at the hotel and, and uh, started off home. And I was thinking to myself, you know, 51 years of sobriety. I've never met anyone with that type of sobriety. And I thought to myself, it's like being with a, one of those uh, Hall of Fame coaches I know about. You know, it's just a great privilege to be with such a good guy. Carol and I had dinner with him. We had an opportunity to talk over a lot of things and this man's got such a sense of humor it's just incredible here but you know he stopped and think about it. this guy started his journey friday it's 3 a.m to get here to atlanta at two o'clock in the afternoon and i said boy anybody that comes that distance to visit with us folks in marietta has got to have one powerful message so please extend a warm welcome to our guest cecil c Check out the threads. Only this is the schedule. Thanks very much, Joe. <clears throat> Where is the water I asked somebody to bring to me? Oh, I'd like seven glasses of water. <laughs> I asked him to do a simple thing like that. I noticed when he was trying to win something on that raffle, he was paying attention, but I asked him to bring water, and he can't do it. <laughs> My name is Cecil. I'm an alcoholic. Very grateful to be here. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm grateful to be anywhere. Uh, it says here uh, on the podium to talk slow. Santa Claus doesn't talk slow, so why should I have to talk slow? <laughs> but it reminds me of a story about a preacher that was trying to sell Bibles. And he sent his congregation out to sell Bibles. One lady come in, she'd sold three. Another one come in, she'd sold five. Another one come in, she'd sold eight. Then a guy comes in, he'd sold 143 Bibles. And the minister called the whole congregation in. He said, tell us how you sold 143 Bibles. And he said, well, it was like this. I would walk up to the door, and I would ring the door bell. When they came to the door, I would say, I am selling Bibles. Would you like to buy one, or 
or would you sooner that I read it to you? this afternoon, a real nice guy. Known him for a long time. Every time he reserved, said something about an old man, he would point to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I don't get upset too often, but after eight or nine times, you do get upset, you know. <laughs> and especially by him. Because <laughs> I heard a story about him. He tells us he's a football player. And uh, he said that he was there uh, playing football for some college. And I heard the story, and this is a true story guy told me. They said that he was a real good football player, was but wasn't that good in academics. And one day they were going to play a big game in playoffs, and everybody that was going to play had to be, you know, great in academics. And the great priest come in, and to give each one a test. So they went to give the great football player a test. And the guy said, now be easy on him because he's not that intelligent. <laughs> and so the, the guy said, that, now I'm just going to give you a simple exam. Now please, 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 because we need you to play it. Please answer the questions. And so the guy said, there was four flies. But they landed right in front of us. Three of them flew away. How many were left? <laughs> and he said, none. The guy says, I'll tell you again. Four of them came. Three of them left. How many was left? None, he said. So he said, why do you say that? Well, he said, if three flew away, the other one would follow. So there would be none. <laughs> He said, you flunked math, but you passed logic. <laughs> so, so he got on the football team. Isn't that great? You know, uh, I've come a long ways to be here, and I hope that uh, you'll appreciate me being here, uh, because when I, I come a long ways, I feel that I should speak a little bit longer than the other speakers. <laughs> but... I didn't expect Santa Claus to have all those raffles. Whoops. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot tonight about my drink, and I'm just going to tell you that I did drink. <laughs> I'm not here by mistake, believe me. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, it said uh, they gave me a big book. They didn't give me a big book. They gave me one. And I borrowed on an installment plan, 50 cents a week, $4 for the book. And I, I didn't have any money, and they sold it to me for on an installment plan. And they told me to read it. And I read the doctor's opinion, and it said, Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they are 
They admit it is injurious. They cannot, after a time, differentiate the coup from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And then it says they are restless, irritable, and discontented. And I identified with that. When I was 16 years old, I became restless, irritable, and discontented. I didn't like the discipline of my school. I didn't like the discipline of my home. I didn't like the discipline of my church. I'm a Protestant, and I was going to a French Catholic school. And they made me read out of the French reader every morning for entertainment. They called the bingos in Latin, so I couldn't understand them. And they were just mean to me. And so I grew up hating Catholics. Still don't think so much of some of them. So I ran away from discipline. And to show you how smart I was, I ran into the Army to get away from discipline. That was really a bad move. And to my knowledge, I'd never had a drink of any kind of alcohol. I was pretty good. I wanted to be an athlete, and I was a good athlete. And they told me not to drink, not to smoke, and I didn't do it. But that night, I got my big uniform on, and I went downtown with the rest of the men, and we went into the beer parlor. And I had my first beer, and great things started to happen to me. All of a sudden, I was a great conversationalist. All of a sudden, somebody said something I didn't like, and I got muscles. And then we went dancing. And oh, my God, you should have seen me. I was Canada's own Fred Astaire. For the benefit of young people, he was a good dancer. Then I took a girl home. And Clark Gable and Charles Boyer, they were great lovers of those days, and I was both of them combined. But the next morning, I woke up in that armories, and I was that scared little boy that had come in the day before to join the Army. But every night, I could be what I wanted to be. I'd go to the beer parlor with the men, and I thought, boy, this is really living. I did well in the Army. I became an instructor shortly after I got in, and I did well. I went in, that was 1940, and I got kicked out in 41. And I went back home, and I got a job at an aircraft factory, and building airplanes. And I did really well on that job. I got a job where I was supervising some guys. But all of a sudden, I got too much responsibility, and once again, I became restless, irritable, discontented. And I ran once again. And I ran back into the Army and told them I'd never been in before and got into the Army, and this time I was a genius. I got recommended for my commission. I'd love to stand here and tell you I was an officer in the Canadian Army, but I got kicked out when I was 18. And I went back home. I got a job in a newspaper selling advertising. Did real well in the job, but once again got a little bit of responsibility. And I became restless, irritable, discontented again, and I ran once again. And I ran into the Navy. And, and they, they recognized my talents, and they sent me away to be an officer for officer's training. I'd love to stand here and tell you I was an officer in the Canadian Navy. 
can't take that of officer's training. It seems that an officer didn't appreciate me telling him what he could do with his ship. And, and I have been at the West Coast and the East Coast, and I see some of those big ships, and really it's a physical impossibility to do with that ship. <laughs> what I told him to do with it. <laughs> I, I, uh, did a lot of sports when I was in the Navy, and uh, I was really good. I got married to a beautiful little girl when I was 19 years old. I'm still married to her. I know that's not popular today, but <laughs> I'm still married to her. It's not my fault, mind you. And uh, <laughs> I uh, decided to stay in the Navy after officer's training, and I became a gunner on a merchant ship. And I sailed all over the world, and I drank all over the world. And you people in the United States owe me a great deal of gratitude. Because we took a, car, a shipload of whiskey from Canada down to New Zealand and Australia for your servicemen. I think that's who it was for. It looked like they were drinking it after we got it unloaded. But... Uh, we didn't get it all unloaded, incidentally. As a matter of fact, all of it didn't get there. <laughs> and and uh, we uh, got most of it unloaded. And then what you really owe me the gratitude for is the fact that our ship was empty and your, one of your ships got torpedoed and it got salvaged and barred back to Australia, to Melbourne, Australia. And they... Uh, towed it in there, and our ship was the only ship that was empty, and the government ordered us to take your tanks up to New Guinea. And I, I don't mean drunken tanks, I mean those tanks that <laughs> used in the Army. So we took them up there, and the Japanese were very narrow about that. They were shooting at us and trying to torpedo us and do a lot of things and bomb us. And, but we got them unloaded, and we got back, and, and then we found some of that liquor that hadn't been unloaded. And uh, we got celebrating, and our own aircraft came out to meet us from Australia to escort us back into town, or into to Australia. And we thought it was the Japanese aircraft coming back, because by this time we were really celebrating on your, that whiskey. And we started shooting at them. And suddenly the, our, our captain realized it was our own aircraft, and... He got a little bit excited. I don't know why, but he was, uh, we weren't hitting him. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you have to, have to visualize what happened. You know, he had to stop us from firing. Now, he's up here like on the bridge, and I'm in charge of a big forward gun right down here. And he gets in a big megaphone, which goes into this microphone and then into every microphone on the guns. And he hollered out, Cease! Fire! <laughs> So I fired. <laughs> and he said, had I shot one of them down, I'd have been a Japanese ace. But he finally got me stopped. But you people have never said thank you for that. <laughs> and I got back in the civilian life at discharge. But this time we had a little daughter. And uh, she was really a sweet little gal. She still is. And uh, I had never been in married life. I just got married, 
got my wife pregnant and left, and I'd never lived a married life. And I came back home, and I thought what you did in the evenings when you finished, you did the same as when you shipped off, you went ashore, and you went to the beer parlor somewhere. And she was a little narrow about that, but she she put up with it for a while. But while I was in the service, I learned how to gamble. Not only that, I learned how to cheat gamble. And uh, I got back home, and, and I, was, I was getting into the odd poker game, but not a whole bunch. But one night I went to a, to a, a stag for our hockey club. We were raising money for the hockey club. And they asked me to look after the bar. And I was looking after the bar, and everybody's playing poker. And finally, there wasn't much business at the bar because everybody would just come up and get stuff for the people who were playing poker, and they were drinking it. And, and uh, I was watching one particular game that was right down there, and, and there's just a bunch of rubes playing there. And, and I thought, golly, if somebody gets up from there and leaves, I'm going to just quit this job and go down there and play poker. And that's what I did. I went down and uh, I got uh, playing poker and won a few hands, and but I got caught cheating. I guess it's okay to cheat, but don't get caught by the guy that caught me. He weighed 275 pounds. He was an ex-commando in the Dayton Army, and he and I had a fight. Or I should say he had a fight. <laughs> <laughs> he hit me, and I hit the cement floor, and I got up, and he hit me, and I hit the cement floor. We did that a whole bunch of times. <laughs> And finally, I stayed down because I couldn't get up. <laughs> I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? And they took me to the hospital. And I went to the hospital, and they took me to a Catholic hospital. <laughs> I didn't tell them that I was Protestant. They just took me to a Catholic hospital. And this was before Medicare in Canada, and I had lost my money in the poker game, so I had to give them a bad check. For a, I had to have a private room. <laughs> I, I get this private room with a bad check, and uh, I'm in there. And you know, I thought I had a lot of friends, but I guess they didn't know where I was because nobody came to see me. My wife and family, and none of them came to see me. And I'm there for four days, and finally the doctor sat down and had a chat with me. And he said, Cease, I've done everything I can do for you. I've built you up physically, and now the rest is up to you. And I said, well, what do you mean by the rest? And he said, well, I was in the service with you, and you should have had your commission. You didn't. You fouled it up. And he said, you drank too much. You haven't improved since you got home. As a matter of fact, you're worse. And he said, I think you're an alcoholic. And I said, an alcoholic? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what will I do? And he said, I would suggest that you join Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 27 years old. And that really wasn't popular back then, to get an AA at 27 years old. And he, he just walked out the door and left me there. All day long, a couple of nurses come in, did some things. My food came in and stuff. And I, I lay there and thought about it. And I didn't know what to do. But that night, a couple of guys came to see me, uninvited, just walked in. And they were all dressed up and clean, and they looked good. And they said, we are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
the doctor had sent them. I didn't, I didn't ask them to come. They just came. And they really impressed me. They impressed me because one of the, I knew both of them. One is the sloppiest drunk in all of Canada, and he was dressed up, and he was looking good, and he, he was, you know, oh, he looked real great. The other one was a fellow I'd been in the service with, and he'd gone to another city when he came back from the Army, and he hit a taxi driver on the head, and he got five years in the penitentiary, and he found Alcoholics Anonymous in the penitentiary. And he, too, looked good. And they didn't talk about me. They talked about them. They told me what had happened to them. And they really impressed me. And I think that's so important. You know, they didn't talk down to me. I'm laying there in the bed. And, and then they said they were going to have an emergency meeting the next morning. In those days, if they got a live one, they had an emergency meeting. And, and they said, will you come? And, and I thought, well, nobody else has come to see me. I better hang on to these guys. So I said I would go. But I had a little trouble with this little Catholic nun. I don't imagine there's any other kind of a nun. I imagine she shouldn't say she's Catholic. But she wanted some money for this check. So the next morning I had to phone somebody, get some money, and I phoned my bootlegger, who was a taxi driver. And he came, and he didn't know he was going to have to lend me some money to bail me out of hospital. But I told him my problem, and I told him I'd get him some money, which I did, and, uh, and he drove me to this meeting. And there were 15 people in Alcoholics Anonymous at that time, and they all came. In those days, they all came if they got a live one. And I knew every one of them. And I had drank with every one of them. I come from a town at that time, it was about 25,000, it's about 40,000 now. And I liked what they said, and I really liked them. And then they said, well, there's a meeting tonight, and we'll take you home. I said, no, 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 I'd go home by myself. You see, I'd been away a couple of times, maybe more than that, sometimes for three or four days. And Babe was always very narrow about that. And and if some guys came home with me, she shooed them out. And I thought, my golly, if these guys take me home and she put, gets rid of them, who am I going to have, you know? But fortunately, there was no Al-Anon at that time. That's not what was fortunate. That's no Al-Anon. There was no Al-Anon in our town, but some of the ladies used to go to mixed meetings, and they'd been up to see Babe to tell her what I was going to try to do. And... I walked in the door, and she hugged me, and she kissed me, and she said, I think everything's going to be okay, hon. My God, if nothing else, I stayed in AA for that day, because she changed already. You know, <laughs> I thought this is a good deal, and she was friendly to my friends, and that was real nice. And that night, we went to our first AA meeting. There was a mixed meeting on a Saturday night just like this. And we walked in. And then, when we walked in, we were both 27 years old. Those people that I'd saw, that we'd seen this, that, in, that I'd seen in the morning, they were, had got a little older. And then they, they had a social. And they played pin the tail on the donkey on a Saturday night. And this really wasn't my idea of a Saturday night, pin the tail on the donkey. But I noticed Babe's having a great time. And then they had a meeting. 
And a guy stood up and he said he'd been sober for a year. And I knew him and I thought, liar. You know, I, I, what you do is you travel man. I know you go out on the road and drink all week and come in until he's down because you're sober. I had them all figured out. After the meeting, a little guy by the name of Bobby took me into another room with another guy. And he said, Cease, well, you're going to have to get a sponsor. And I said, what's the sponsor? Well, he said, he's somebody to look after you. And I saw a guy sitting there that I had drank with, and he was dressed up, and he was looking good. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll ask Elmer. So I went to Elmer, and I said, Elmer, they say I have to get a sponsor. Will you be my sponsor? I don't think Elmer knew what a sponsor was, because he's only been sober ten days, but I didn't know that. <laughs> and, and Elmer became my sponsor. Elmer's still my sponsor. And, and what, a, what a deal, you know. And then they told me that I had to buy that book, and I, and I told them I didn't have any money. And they said, well, what can you afford a week? And they said, can you afford 50 cents a week? And I said, yes, I could. And, and so I bought the book at 50 cents a week. And then they told me that there, there was going to be a meeting uh, twice a week and that I had to be there. And Elmer had to make uh, promise them that he would make sure I was there. And by this time, I'm thinking it's okay, but golly, you know, do I really need this Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous stuff? I, I looked, and, I, and then, then they got a little older again as I looked at them. And I, I thought, well, maybe I don't need it. I was something like, I, I don't know whether you have alcoholic rabbits down here or not, but I was something like a, an alcoholic rabbit. Uh, you know, I don't mean a Saturday night drunk rabbit. I mean a real genuine alcoholic rabbit. And there were three of them. And they were called Foot and Foot, Foot and Foot, Foot, Foot. And Foot, Foot used to fall on Foot, Foot, Foot. She said, let's pick a ball Foot, we'll go down to the bar. So Foot, Foot, Foot and Foot, Foot to pick a ball Foot to go down to the bar. And Foot, 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 sitting talking Foot, Foot, Foot one night. And he said, where's Foot? And Foot, Foot said, the Foot, Foot, Foot. He said, here just a minute. We went outside. So Foot, Foot, Foot and Foot, Foot. They went outside. They found poor old Foot and Foot's dead. Foot, Foot said to Foot, 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 what do you think we should do with Foot? And Foot, Foot, Foot said to Foot, Foot, well, I think we should take him to the funeral home. After the funeral, Foot, Foot said to Foot, 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 he said, why do you think old Foot died from? And Foot, Foot, Foot said to Foot, Foot, well, he's drinking quite a bit. And Foot, Foot said to Foot, 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 he said, do you think he's alcoholic? And Foot, Foot, Foot said to Foot, Foot, well, he was sure drinking a lot. And so Foot, Foot said to Foot, 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 do you think we're alcoholics? And Foot, Foot, Foot said to Foot, Foot, he said, well, well, kind of drinking the same as Foot did. So Foot, Foot said to Foot, 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 do you think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous? And Foot, Foot, Foot said to Foot, Foot, might as well. He says, we got one foot in the grave anyway. I thought about Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought you had one foot in the grave. And uh, what I started to do, at, what they told us to do, and uh, once a week they had a, a mixed meeting where the ladies came and uh, the wives came, and uh, that was a good meeting. And But in those days they talked about how much they drank. And some of them lied. I know they I mean, God Almighty, they told some awful stories. One guy, I remember, his name was Ed, and he said, Mandy sent him out to get some meat. He didn't come back for four years. And, and, and all Mandy said is, where's the meat? 
<laughs> you know, I didn't believe that story. But there was a lot of stories like that. And Elmer used to come over, and Babe and, and Gertie would they would play cards, and Elmer and I would read this big book. And we said, there's got to be more to this AA than just talking about drinking. And so then we were really, really fortunate. A guy came to our town by the name of Ernie. And Ernie was from another town, and, you know, when someone moves to your town, or, uh, he was in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, you know, if you move 40 miles away, you're a genius, you know. So we figured that he must know a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous because he, he came, and we asked him if he'd chair. We used to chair for three months at a time. And we asked him if he'd chair for three months, and he said he would, providing we did one thing. And we said, what's that? And he said, well, I'm, I want us to go through the steps in sequence. And I want us not to just study the steps. I want us to do the steps. And we thought we'd all humor old Ernie along, so, so we did that. We uh, went to the first meeting, told us to bring our big books, told us to go home and read the first 58 pages. And we went home, and now it's not hard to read the first 58 pages. But Elmer would phone me. He said, what do you think old Ernie will ask us? And, and, you know, if you think you're going to get an examination on it, it becomes a little trouble. And so we, we really studied the first 58 pages, believe me. And then we went, and Ernie didn't ask us any, anything except he said, how many read the first 58 pages? We all put up our hands. So Ernie said, okay, we're going to do step one, where we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. We didn't have the 12 by 12 at that time. We just had the big book to go by. And we we read all the things that, you know, was talking about step one. And he made us promise that we all said that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And we, we all, everybody did it. And uh, so went away and said, keep studying the big book, looking at reading it. And, and he said, next week we'll... Uh, Take uh, step two. And, you know, it doesn't sound, you know, too great to do that, but but when, when you start doing it, it starts, you know, where it says that can't believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And in those days, they didn't have treatment centers. They had, you'd go to mental hospital. They'd send drunks to mental hospitals. And I thought, restore you to sanity. Well, I hadn't been in a mental hospital, and I said to Ernie, look, I've never been in those mental hospitals. How can I come back from somewhere I haven't been? He said, cease, it means negative thinking, and you are a negative thinker. And I, I said, well, I guess maybe I am. I don't know. But you see, in those days... I'm, I don't know whether you do this in the United States or not, but people would sit around trying to help somebody that wasn't there. <laughs> you know, some of you did that. And they'd say things like, I heard. They say, everybody says, have you heard? Did you hear? Isn't it awful? People say, did you ever? Somebody said, would you think? Don't say I told you. Oh, I think it's terrible. That's called the shady dozen. 
And I was that type of person. I could sit around all day long fixing somebody else up, but not worrying about myself. I was something like the negative barber. You know, my attitude was really wrong. A guy stood in the barber chair one day, and he said, like a haircut lasts me for three weeks. The barber said, why three weeks? The guy said, I'm going on vacation. The barber said, where are you going? He said, well, first of all, I'm going to London, England. The barber said, you're not going to London, England. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I, you know. I've never been there, but I heard. It's a lousy place to go. Too many people, too many cars. The guy said, look, I don't care. If I don't like it there, I'm going to, I'm going over to Paris. Barbara said, you're not going to Paris. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. Wouldn't go there by you. Now, I've never been there either, but I heard they really fleece the tourists. The guy said, look, just cut my hair. If I don't like it there, I'm going to Rome. The barber says, you're not going to Rome. He says, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. Wouldn't go there by you. He said, a lot of Catholics there. <laughs> he says, the guy says, I'm a Catholic. Yeah, but he says, I heard different kind of a Catholic over there. Three weeks later, the guy come back, stood in the barber chair. The barber says, how was your trip? He said, it was good. He said, it wasn't. He said, it was. He said, you didn't go to London. He said, I did. He said, you did. He said, I did. Loved to stay there long. We wanted to get on to Paris. And he says, you didn't go to Paris. He said, I did. He said, you didn't. He said, I did. Loved to stay there, stay there long. We wanted to go to Rome. He says, you didn't go to Rome. And he said, I did. He says, you didn't. He said, I did. As a matter of fact, he says, you'll never believe what happened to me. He said, I got an audience with the Pope. He says, you didn't. He said, I did. He says, you didn't. And you'll never believe what happened. He says, I knelt down, bent down to kiss the Pope's ring, and you'll never believe what the Pope said. And the barber says, what? And he says, where the hell did you get that lousy hair back? And I was that kind of a guy. I, I was negative, and, and I know none of you people even identify with that. But, but uh, that's the way I was. I was really a negative thinker, and uh, you know, I, I would, I would always try to think of the negative thing instead of the positive. And then, but Ernie said, just do the stepsies, you know, where we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore sanity. Just take a chance, do it. So I did it. Next week we went. Ernie said, okay, we're going to take step three. Well, we have to make a decision to take our, turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood Him. A lot of people say we understand Him, but it's just in the book as we understood Him. And, uh, you know, that, that they, uh, making that decision. I have never yet met an alcoholic <laughs> that was good at making decisions, especially good decisions. And he's asking us to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Now, I don't know about you, but I had a difficult time with that. I had a difficult time with, with the decision part. Uh, it reminds me of an old poacher story. I don't know whether you know what poachers are or not, but we have them back in Canada where they fish out a season, hunt out a season without license and everything. And there was one old guy who was there, and this, this old poacher, a new, new game warden, came to town, and he heard about this guy, and he was going to catch him. And he went down, and he made friends with him, and he was talking to him. At 12 noon, the old fisherman, the old poacher, he said, well, I'm going fishing. And the game warden said, well, can I go with you? And he said, yeah, come on. So they went out, and they got out in the middle of the stream, and the old poacher stopped the boat, reached over, and got two sticks of dynamite, lit them, threw them into the drink. Boom! Up comes the noise, and up comes the fish, out comes the net, and in comes the fish. 
and the old, out comes the badge, and the old game warden is giving him a lecture. I finally got you. Nobody else could catch you, but I got you. The old game warden never batted an eye. Reached over, got two more sticks of dynamite, lit them, handed them over to the game warden. The game warden's sitting there with two lit sticks of dynamite. And the old poacher says, look at buddy, do you want to talk or do you want to fish? <laughs> he made a decision. <laughs> but I made that decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. I did it this way. I went home. I went downstairs. I didn't want to see babe. Let babe see me getting down on my knees. I went downstairs and I said, look at God. I've done a bad job managing my life. How about you give me a hand? Just as simple as that. You see, they told me to keep things simple. And I decided to keep things simple. I have a, talk about being simplicity, I have a friend of mine back home that has a ranch. Another friend said, how did you get the name of your ranch? And he said, I wanted to call it the Bar Q. My wife wanted to call it Susie Q. My son wanted to call it the Bar Susie Q. My daughter wanted to call it Susie Bar Q. So we called it the Bar Q, Susie Q, Susie Bar Q, Bar Susie Q. And the guy said, well, that's a great name, but where are the cattle? He says, none of them ever survived the branding. <laughs> you know, that will probably happen to us if we don't simplify things. So I made it real simple. And by golly, you know, things started to happen to me. First of all, I, I found myself saying a little prayer in the morning, as they'd asked me to do, to stay sober. And I found myself feeling a little bit better. I found myself not being concerned about drinking. I found myself getting, feeling better physically. Our home life was a baby it changed a whole lot. She wasn't knackering in the morning about me being out all night and things like that because I'd been home. And things were just a lot better. And then the next week, Ernie brought every one of us a pencil and a paper. And we said, what's this about? And he said, well, I heard that people have a tough time taking their fourth step because they can't find a pencil and paper. <laughs> and he says, we've eliminated that right now. And so we got into this book <clears throat> about the fourth step. We'll make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And Ernie told us what we had to do and, and showed us this deal on page 65 of the, this big book. And away we went. Everybody went home. I'd phone Elmer and Elmer would say, I'm getting along pretty good on this. It's not that I'm following that deal there. I'm, I'm resentful at so-and-so, Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, all that stuff on page 65. And he said, I think I'm going to be able to do mine. And I said, I'm doing the same thing. And Golly, we all went back, and I, I had my piece of paper, and I wanted to show it. Oh, no. He said, that, that is personal. You don't have to worry about that. And so then he read step five to us out of the big book, what we had to do. <clears throat> now, I've talked to a lot of American people that tell me that they did their step five with their sponsor. Now, I bought this book, and it was printed in the United States. This book was printed in the United States. And I bought it, and on page 74 of this big book, it tells us about the fifth step, where we 
admitted to God, to herself, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And this is what it says. Rightly and naturally, we think well before choosing the person or persons with whom to take this intimate and confidential step. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination, which requires confession, must, I imagine that's Catholics, and of course they will want to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty it is to receive it. Though we have no religious connection, we may still do well to talk with someone ordained by an established religion. We often find that such a person quick to see and understand our problem. How about that? That is a book that was printed in the United States that I bought for 50 cents a week and by golly, I read it and that's what it told me. And I wouldn't take a fifth step with old Elmer. First of all, he's a blabbermouth. And, and if I, if I'd have said something real serious, he wouldn't have understood anyway, stood it anyway. He's totally unscarred by education and, and, you know, he, he just, so I went to a minister, Protestant minister. And, uh, he'd had little trouble in his life and by golly, he and I became real good friends. He had read the big book. He knew about the fifth step. And now we have uh, fifth step programs for, for the, the ministerial association. It doesn't matter what denomination. And we tell them what would explain step four and step five to them. And everybody now, I believe everybody in our town, goes to a man of the cloth. And I think that I think that's right because I read it in a book that I bought that was printed here. And I think the Americans are pretty smart people. And that's why I do that, you know. But then I find Americans telling me that they don't do that that way. So you you confuse me. <laughs> but I'm gonna keep doing it my way, the way that you told me in this book. And then you know, we thought we were really great. We'd all done one, two, three, four, and five in five weeks. And we're really, Elmer's bragging to me, I'm bragging to him, we're phoning each other. And we go, and the next week, Elmer, Ernie said, well, everybody do their step five, everybody up with their hands. And Ernie said, well, I'm going to tell you something. You haven't done anything yet. And we said, what do you mean? Well, he says, now are you ready to get well? You know what's wrong with you. You've gone and discussed with another human being and with the God of your understanding. And he said, now do you want to get well? You see, people put so much emphasis on that step four and five that they forget about six and seven. Six says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven says, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. This is where we want to get well. But people just, I don't know why, why it is. They just think they're okay because they've done a step five. Well, now do we really want to get well? You know, I heard a story about little Johnny. His mother caught him playing with himself. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's on the shows we watch on television. I'm sure there's nothing wrong with that. But she said to Johnny, Johnny, if you don't stop doing that, you're going to go blind. 
And little Johnny says, well, can I keep it up till I need glasses? You know. <laughs> I, would, I was speaking one time back in Canada, and I told that story. And when I finished, a lady at the back of the room headed right for me. She looked like she was the president of the Temperance Society. And I thought, oh, my God, I probably shouldn't have told that story about little Johnny. And she comes up and shook my hand, and she said, young man, it's quite a few years ago, didn't call me old man. She said, young man. And uh, she said, I really liked the way you led us through the steps today. I particularly liked the story about little Johnny. But she said, as I looked around, did you notice how many alcoholics are wearing glasses? <laughs> But when it said humbly, asked him, Ernie said, how many are getting down on their knees? I was having a difficult time to get down on my knees. And I heard a guy from Chicago talk. His name was Shy Walker. He's now gone. I can break his anonymity. And Shy told a story about how he had a difficult time to get down on his knees. And he said he was working in construction work. And one night he went home and he was wearing high-top boots. And he kicked his boots underneath the bed. And he said in the morning he'd get down on his knees to get his boots. <laughs> and he thought, by golly, I'm going to say a few words while I'm down here. <laughs> so he did. Every night he'd boot his boots under the bed so that the next morning he'd have to get down on his knees to get them and he'd say a few words. I don't know whether it works with high-top boots because I haven't got any. But I do know that it works with ordinary Oxfords because I tried it. And I tried it, and I started to get down on my knees. And, you know, to humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Now, that, that word humbly, a lot of people say, you know, I humbled myself when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. We humiliated ourselves. <laughs> we didn't humble ourselves. We knew nothing about humility, believe me. And at least in Canada, they don't when they first come. But that step... Six and seven is so important. College states, if, if you're not doing it, I mean, if, if you're just getting away from, you know, from thinking that step four and five is okay and that's the end of the program, don't. Because step six and seven to me is when I really started to get well. And it's a tremendous feeling. You start getting rid of those defects of character. The ones that you don't even know that you have, God reminds you that you've got them, and you try to get rid of them. And you become a different human being. You, 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 you're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. It tells you that in the book. And it's the book that I got from the United States, remember? And, and, and we went by it, and it worked. And so, then it told us, Ernie, come back, and he says... Asked us, you know, what we done? We done steps in six and seven and how? And we, and we all, boy, we had great things to say about it because every one of us was looking better, we were feeling better, and the entire group were getting to know something about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know that the trouble is with Alcoholics Anonymous worldwide is a lot of people don't know what they belong to because they've never read the book. They have never done the steps. I belong to a group called We Do the Step Group. 
believe me, we do the step group. When they come in that group, they do the steps. We have a step program that goes every 14 weeks, and we put the ones, doesn't matter whether it's one, two, three, four, doesn't matter what, we put them through, and, and we have the meeting before the meeting, and a Thursday night, and everybody in our group, except the ones that are going through the steps, have done the steps in sequence, right through to step 12. And it's a tremendous thing. It is just a tremendous thing, believe me. And I just hope that people will, you know, think about that. Because uh, there's a brand new member here tonight. And I hope that he gets a sponsor. And I hope that somebody takes him through the steps and helps him, sponsors him properly. Because if you don't, there's, uh, you know, what are you going to do? There's just, uh, there's, there's just so many come, people coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and not staying. Why are they not staying? Because they have never got a hold of that feeling. That's why they're not staying. If they get that feeling, they're going to stay. So that's up to us. If there's nothing else that I ever do, believe me, I, I go to the step meeting. All I have to do today with the step meeting is show up. I've got three other guys, or the two guys and a gal doing it, and all i got to do is show up and sit there, and they know that I've been sober for a while, and, and uh, I, I don't wave the wand or anything, but they know that I know that they've got to do something. And so I just hope that everybody, whether you're in Al-Anon, Al-Ateen, Al-Athot, Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever you're in, I hope that you do the steps in sequence. Step eight told us we had to make another list of all the people we'd harm and become willing to make amends to them all. I said to Ernie, I did that in step four. Ernie said, knowing you, Corgo, you probably hurt somebody between step four and step eight. Just go home and make the list. And that's what I did. I went home and I made the list, and he was right. I had hurt some people, believe me. And I, I made that, I made the list. And then the next week he told us what to do with the list. And that was to go out and make those amends. I have a little guy that I sponsor. His name is Jimmy. A little great guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Jimmy, I would say that Jimmy has done the best step nine of anybody in the world. He, he, he took time off work just to do step nine. And he did every amend. He'd come in and he said, Cease, I made an appointment with this guy. I made an appointment with this one. And several ladies he had to make appointments with. And he, he, he did a step nine of where it was supposed to be done. Except one amend. And that was to his father. And he went several times to make amend to his father. And somebody was there. He couldn't get him alone. And one night, Jimmy went and he thought, Tonight, I don't care what happens, I'm going to make amends to my father. His father was a farmer, or they owned a farm, and they were living in the city. And, and his father said to him, Jim, tomorrow, what say you and I go out to the farm? And Jim thought, gee whiz, I'm going to be with him all day long. I'll make my amends to him. Jim went to the show. Half hour after he'd been in the show, he got a phone call. His dad had died of a heart attack. And Jim hadn't made amends to him. I was his sponsor, and I, I said, well, Jim, you know, after the funeral, 
there was a pastor there that really understood Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, let's go and talk to the pastor. And we went up there and told him Jim's problem. And the pastor took Jim out to the graveyard. And he knelt down and the pastor told him what to say. And he made his amends. Don't let that happen to you. All you have to do is make it right now. You know, just go and make them. And you, when, when I made my amends, believe me, I became a really a free man in our city. Prior to my amends, walking down the main drag of our city, I would be on this side, I would see someone coming that I had to, and I couldn't meet, I'd have to go to that side. Then I'd see somebody coming from both ways, on both sides, and I'd have to duck into a store. Sometimes I'd have to go to a back alley. And sometimes I'd meet somebody back there that I needed to make amends to. <laughs> and so I made the amends, and believe me, I can walk down any street in the world. And I'm not worried, because I've made my amends. But then it says, in step 10, continue to take personal inventory. And when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. And I can really talk about that step. For you see, after I'd been in Alcoholics Anonymous just a little while, I got a big job. I got a big job managing a big fur department of a store. Pretty soon I got to be manager of the store and looking after the furs for five stores. And I was big. <laughs> Driving the big car, going on expense trips and buying trips. Going to the penitentiary every Tuesday night to talk to the inmates and with an attitude something like this. <laughs> These guys are really lucky that the great one comes out here every Tuesday, you know. <laughs> and I, I, that was the way my thinking went. Because I wasn't taking a step ten where it says continue to take personal inventory. And when we're wrong, promptly admitted. I was never wrong. I mean, I was managing... Had 32 ladies working for me in the store. The other stores, you know, when I went in, I was big and man, oh man. And I even had some loud jackets. <laughs> and I did television shows with models and talked to them. And I emceed great big political rallies and everything. Everything that went on in town, I was part of it. And, and I was thinking, forgetting that if it hadn't been for Alcoholics Anonymous and for that little doctor telling me about Alcoholics Anonymous Hospital, I wouldn't be there. But I was taking the credit. And I got suffering from big shot-ism. And that can happen to us where we think we're that great. You know, I used to sing, so I, if I had someone heard, heard someone singing How Great Thou Art, I was singing, well, they know I'm walking by, you know. <laughs> and that's real sick. That's real sick. But all of a sudden, I uh, got called into the boss's office one day. <laughs> and he didn't like the way that I was acting. And he said he gave me six months to change. But I was so great, because I'd been offered other jobs, I went up on the main floor, walked around for about 20 seconds, and went back down. I said, I'm finished in 30 days. And he begged me not to. He said, all I want you to do is change, 
some things you're doing. And I said, no, I've been offered a bigger job, you know, and I thought, I don't need you. I walked away from a million dollars because they intended to take me into the, into the business. He begged me to stay, and I wouldn't stay. And, you know, just because I wasn't taking step 10, I went into Winnipeg, Manitoba, and, uh, but before I went there, I had a little cousin come to town, and she was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went down, and I had some brand new threads on, and I stood up in front of Fern, and I said, well, kid, you know, how do I look? And she said these simple words. She said, see, she look really good on the outside. How are you really on the inside? And I went into Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I spent one complete day with this big book and God. And there was a dear, dear old fellow there by the name of Ross Marr, he's now dead. And I went to a meeting with Ross, and Ross took me down to when I was leaving, and we went to the restaurant and had dinner, and I said, Ross, what's wrong with me? And he said, Cease, you have untreated alcoholism untreated alcoholism. I had been a, de a delegate to the General Service Conference. I'd been big in Alcoholics Anonymous if there's such a thing. How could I have untreated alcoholism? And he, I said, you mean I've got to go to a treatment center? He said, no. Just go back and do it the way you used to do it. And I went back home and started that and I got well. And I tell you, it's step 10 is such a precious step to me and you know that taking that inventory every day I mean when you I, I instantly don't forget to give that to Joe when I so you, we get one every day then and give a little deal I know Joe's okay but I just want to, don't want him to get say what happened to me <laughs> so anyway I went to I got back and got into Alcoholics Anonymous never been away but I got back in I went to the penitentiary with the right attitude I went to my my meetings with the right attitude I'd walk into the meeting and say well, you guys are really lucky you know a great one comes here twice a week you know I mean that is sick thinking and so I got back into Alcoholics Anonymous I was 10 years sober and believe me I started working the steps pretty hard and I haven't stopped working them pretty hard, believe me, because I never want to go through that again. Then it said, you know, about the the eleventh step, you know, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Each and every morning, here is what I have to do. I have to read page 86, 87, and 88. I have to read the prayer on page 63 and the prayer on, on, six, on, on page 76. I have to read the promises on page 83 and 84. Page 112, it says, We absolutely must insist on enjoying life. Page 164, the last two paragraphs where it says, we trudge the road. It doesn't tell us we gallop. It says we trudge the road to happy destiny. And then it, I read page 99 of the 12 by 12, the St. Francis Prayer. Some people say, what do you, what, what, 
Sometimes you get up. <laughs> I tell you what, sometimes I don't get up. I read it before I get out of bed. And I'll tell you, I used to, I, every time I would do this and say this, people would come up and say to me, what are those pages? And so I had these little cards printed up. And I just handed it to them. But that got too expensive because I found out there was a lot of people not doing their reading in the morning. So I did a deal over in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I did a weekend for them over there. Friday night I did my story. Saturday morning I did the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Saturday night I did the traditions. And Saturday morning, Sunday morning I did a service and sponsorship. And they phoned me and they said they wanted this on tape. And I said, well, it's okay, go ahead and put it on tape. And they said, no, we want your voice. <laughs> and I'd given them, the, get every one of this, them there. And so they phoned me a little while later and they said, how's the tape coming? I said, I haven't done it yet. So finally I went to the radio station and I did it. And it's called Morning Meditations by Cease. I call it Seven Minutes with God. And if you want the tape, it's available right over there. And I would suggest that you get it. Because you can get it before you can play it while you're having breakfast. You can play it while you're going to work. And you, you do those seven minutes with God. And believe me, it's a better life. Because you see, you never know who's out there to get you. Sometimes before you get out of your house, somebody gets you. You know, I'll be sneaking out of my house, and all of a sudden, pitter pat pat pat. It's the babe, and she wants some money to have her hair done. She's got money, but she wants my money. You know, I kiss her goodbye and don't give her any money until I love her and I'm gone. <laughs> Sometimes she's still standing there when I get home at night. But you see, there's always going to be somebody to aggravate your disease. You know, there's just somebody that's going to aggravate your disease. And you've got to be ready for them. And if you do the listen to the tape or do your reading, you're going to be ready for them. I heard another story about an old poacher. And there was a game warden by the name of Ralph. And old Ralph tried to get this old poacher, and he couldn't get him. Finally, one night he went down and he bedded down in a bunch of hay outside the old poacher's sack. And he thought, in the morning, I guarantee he'll do something wrong, and I'll get him. Four o'clock in the morning, he's, the doors creaked open. He thought, I'm going to get him. He's going to do something. The old poacher poked his head out the door, and he says, Want some breakfast, Ralph? <laughs> Ralph thought, what the heck goes on? He goes inside, and he's having breakfast, and he said, How did you know I was out there? And he said, I didn't, but every morning for the past six months, I've opened the door and said, want some breakfast for <laughs> You see, you never know who's out there to get you, so you've got to be ready for them. And that's, that's what I do. And, and I'll tell you what, I live a pretty good life, and I have a good life, and I'm privileged to do this a whole lot, and, and I'm privileged to do a whole lot of things a whole lot, and then... I was uh, recently inducted into my hometown in the Sports Hall of Fame. I, in 1984, I became Citizen of the Year. You know, that's hard to talk about. 
He says, uh, I was a drunk to come out of a hospital. And all of a sudden, great things are happening to me. I said to Babe, when I came, went to that first meeting, did you think that they would make me citizen of the year and make me a, put me in the Sports Hall of Fame? And she said, no, I didn't give it much thought. <laughs> <laughs> and I do uh, promotional work for hockey teams. I do motivational work with people. And I have a little grandson who's not a little grandson. He's 19 years old. And he's uh, going to become an American probably. He's coming to Michigan. To He got a scholarship for hockey in Michigan. And I do the promotion work for their hockey team. Every hockey game I send them some promotional stuff and they went right to the top and it's been two years in a row and, and uh, he got his, this, this scholarship. And, you know, it's, it's worth a lot of money to have a scholarship and an education. And, and I went to speak to their hockey club when they were around. Uh, and just before the final game, and uh, his name is uh, my two daughters married Catholics. Uh, uh, Italian ones, they're the worst kind. <laughs> and this, this good-looking little guy, not little guy, he's a big guy, he's 19 years old, he's a good-looking guy and a great hockey player, he wouldn't be. His name is Giovanni Flaminio. Can you imagine giving a kid a name like that? But Gio, I had, he had heard me speak one time at a deal, and when he, when he phoned me, he said, he calls me Cease, and he said, Cease, would you do that deal again about hockey? And when I finished my talk, I said, I closed it like this. I tried to play hockey, and I'm a hockey fan. I like to go to hockey games, and I just like to think maybe tonight. My manager up above is saying to me, see, I'm getting up a hockey team, and I want you to be the assistant coach. Now, you're going to need a lot of help on the team, and I'm going to give it to you. There will be people whom you have come to know and are privileged to work with in your community, I'll give you three men in your executive. They are faith, hope, and charity. Because you're going to need a lot of help, you must use your good friends from booster clubs and fans, and if you use these good people, all of the stumbling blocks that have been your downfall throughout your life will gradually disappear. He went on to say, at the two right wings, I'm going to give you patience and tolerance. At the two left wings, I'm going to give you unselfishness and gratitude. For the two defensemen, enthusiasm and courage. For the two goalies, I'm going to give you honesty and humility. And at the center, I'm going to give you willingness. It'll be necessary that you use willingness in every play. Now, I'm not only your coach, but I'm the main official. There'll be no timeouts, and my decision shall be final. So I'm going to have to give you some ice rules. These rules are the Ten Commandments, as you've come to know them and understand them in your daily living. Now the puck is your eternal soul, the goal, the gateposts to heaven. So get in there and play hockey. Uh, my grandson loves that. And he's, uh, he loves me because of Malcolm's Anonymous. 
And I tell you what, it's just a beautiful thing. But there's one thing I'm a little concerned about in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is our contributions to our general service office. When you look, and I hope everybody looks to see how much you are contributing, we are allowed to not, we can only contribute so much. But don't worry about that because most of us aren't contributing that much. And I, I've been asked to mention it sometimes when I'm speaking because I'm a past trustee. And I'm going to close this talk with a little story. It's a story about a young fellow in Alcoholics Anonymous. He went to an older member and he said, I'm going to quit AA. And the older member said, why are you going to quit? Well, he said, they told me all I had to do was to go to a couple of meetings to them. It wasn't going to cost me any money. Now they want me to go see people in prison, to see visit people in the hospital. There's a birthday party to another group. And he says, they want money for this and they want money for that. And I'm getting sick and tired of it and I'm going to quit. And the old member still stood there for a little while and then in his easy does it way, he said, you know, son, I don't blame you a bit. Because your story reminds me of the story of my life. When I was a young man, just like you, my wife and I were blessed with a bouncing baby boy. Somebody told us that three could live as cheap as two, but that's not so. My wife had some complications. She had to stay in the hospital. I had to hire someone to look after her. I had to take the boy home, hire someone to look after him. When she came home, every time I went downtown, I had to buy something for that kid. Then he started to walk around. He needed a tricycle. Then he got too big for the tricycle. Started to school, wanted a bicycle. Then he went into high school, and he really started to cost me money. Wanted a motorcycle. Then he wanted a car to take the girls out. Extra money for sporting goods. Every time he turned around, he wanted some money from me. And I was like you. I was getting sick and tired of it. But then he said, in the final year of high school, that boy of ours died. He hasn't cost me a penny since. Do what you like with that story, folks. Let's keep it alive. Thank you, God bless.